right. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Bryce. I'm one of the pastors here. And like Brad said, we're continuing this morning in our series. We began last week in the book of Nehemiah as we look at a very familiar... Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it makes sense to say familiar or unfamiliar. Unfamiliar probably passage for most of us, but it's a description of the people of God who are trying to figure out how to regather for worship and present uh, in person together, and there are no walls. Uh, very applicable to us. I mentioned that a couple times last week. Somebody else pointed out that we also don't have a ceiling uh, or doors or any, any parts of a building. So, um, <laughs> But uh, Nehemiah provides this incredible roadmap for what does it look like to regather as God's people. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2 if you have a Bible. And um, I'm trying to see where I can get in the shade so that I don't have technological issues there. <laughs> okay, Nehemiah chapter 2. Let me read God's word for us this morning. I'm actually going to start with the last phrase of Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servants, uh, the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went out to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall 
and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, we gather this morning, and as we do so, I pray that you would um, fill us with great expectation. God, you are a God who speaks to your people. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear. God, as we gather in, in this strange place outside, not exactly sure what the future holds for us, we are aware, um, even with the questions that, that hang before us, um, that we are so privileged, God. And Father, when we when we just consider the, uh, the headlines that we've all seen this week. God, our hearts break for this world. And we pray that you would see and that you would act, God. God, we pray. We pray for the people of Afghanistan. God, we pray that justice and mercy would supernaturally become the norm in that place that those who have risked their lives, that those who are now at risk would be protected. God, would you strengthen your church as your people gather today under a very different threat than the one that faces us. And God, we pray for the people of Haiti. Would you have mercy? Would you have mercy on this country that has been through so much devastation? God, would you awaken your people throughout the world? Would you use us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. In 1803, Thomas Jefferson signed the Louisiana Purchase and in doing so almost doubled the size of the United States of America. And one of the first things that Jefferson did after the Louisiana Purchase was completed was he commissioned Lewis and Clark to go explore the new territory. The problem with the Lewis and Clark expedition was that the entire project was built 
on a completely false expectation. Thomas Jefferson, in commissioning Lewis and Clark, had written that their goal was to find the most direct and practicable practicable water route across this continent for the purpose of commerce. They were supposed to find the Northwest Passage that for 300 years, everybody had assumed existed. It's kind of hard for us to assume uh, what a benefit it would have been to discover such a thing in the early 1800s. It probably would have been equivalent to owning the internet today. They assumed that there was, a mis- there was a river like the Mississippi on the western half of the continent. They assumed that if they controlled that river, that they would control commerce to the west coast, that they would therefore reap the financial benefits that came with it. And so Lewis and Clark and those who traveled with them traveled up the uh, Mississippi River from St. Louis Um, They went up the Missouri River, and they had been traveling for 15 months when they thought they had come to the moment where they would discover the Great Western Northwestern Passage. They had traveled very, very hard travel for 15 months. They had wintered, suffered two really, really difficult winters, but they were approaching the headwaters of the Missouri River, and Meriwether Lewis believed that he would walk up to the top of the hill and look over it. And when he looked over it, that he would see a little stream that would grow into a river and that they would put their boats in that river and they would just go with the currents for a week or two until they got to maybe Washington or Oregon. And so Meriwether Lewis went up and over that hill and he could not have been more disappointed because what he saw is, is, is what we see <laughs> this morning. <laughs> he saw the Rocky Mountains, not a river. Meriwether Lewis wrote, those were the most terrible mountains I had ever seen. <laughs> peak after peak after peak standing between them and the Pacific Ocean. They had planned on rowing to the coast. They thought that after 15 months, of incredibly difficult travel that the worst was behind them. And that morning he discovered, they discovered that the worst hadn't even yet begun. And they discovered that in fact, if they were going to continue forward, they would have to do something um, altogether different than what they had done in order to get as far as they they had. If they were gonna, they, they basically faced an option, right? If they wanted to go by boat, they could only go back the way that they had come from. But if they wanted to continue forward, they had to abandon their boats and learn new skills entirely. They would have to learn how to climb. They had a choice to make because what had gotten them that far wouldn't get them where they needed to go. This morning, as we are continuing to think about what it looks like to regather and rebuild as a church, a part of what we see in the book of Nehemiah is that crisis presents us with opportunity. Because often at moments of crisis, like the one that Lewis and Clark felt on that, uh, on that day in, I think, 1805, and like Nehemiah felt on that day in 445 BC, what crisis does is it, is it shows us that what has gotten us as far as we have will not get us where we are trying to go. 
it presents us with a decision. If we continue to function the same way that we have in the past, it will only take us back the way that we came. But if we hope to follow God into the future that he's leading us into, we will have to be willing to be stretched and challenged. As we talked about Nehemiah last week, uh, Nehemiah is an incredibly useful guide for us in this time of, of rebuilding and regathering as God's people, as, as God's people in a sense emerge out of this time of exile. And Nehemiah rallies the people together to rebuild, to rebuild together. Jerusalem, he has just heard in chapter one, lies in ruins. And the people of God are in great trouble. And it says that he was sad and that he prayed for days. And so when we pick up the story at the beginning of chapter two here, four months have gone by. Um, four months have passed. And Nehemiah, we read at the end of chapter one, his job is the, he is the cupbearer to the king. That means his job is to sit next to the king and prevent the king from being poisoned. Anything the king eats, Nehemiah eats it first. Anything the king drinks, Nehemiah drinks it first. And so Nehemiah's job is to hang around the king 24-7. It's a job that requires an incredible amount of trust. And Nehemiah has been going to work every day, and he hasn't uttered a word about what God has put in his heart to do. He's been praying for four months. And in verse 4, the king says to Nehemiah, what are you asking for? And Nehemiah quickly, before he responds, he says this. He says, I prayed for, to the God of heaven. I think the first thing that stands out in this passage is Nehemiah's utter dependence upon God. Nehemiah's utter dependence upon God. We talked about this a little bit last week. We're going to talk about it some more today. Nehemiah's first instinct when the king finally opens the door when he's been praying for months and months and just looking for the right opportunity to present the king with this plan, the king opens the door and Nehemiah's first response is to pray to the God of heaven. Nehemiah is utterly dependent upon God. Over and over in this passage, we see this. At the end of verse eight, when the king has given Nehemiah the thumbs up, Nehemiah puts it like this. He says, the king granted me what I asked for because the good hand of my God was upon me. The good news came because God was blessing him. In the second part of the passage, when Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, he goes on this secret nighttime inspection of the wall. But he's clear that it's God who has put this plan to rebuild the city on his heart, he says in verse 12. It's God who has led him with this vision. And then at the end of the passage, he calls the people together and he tells the people about God's plan and that they are going to come together and they are going to accomplish this mission together. And the people say, yes, we are with you. And Nehemiah says, it's the God of heaven that is going to accomplish this through us. At every point in this juncture, Nehemiah is utterly dependent upon God. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but if I were in your shoes, I would be saying that sounds like a pretty obvious point. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this is the Bible, first of all. But of course, if we're going to rebuild together as a church and if we're going to embrace God's call in our lives, of course we have to depend on God. We got it. Let's move on. But I want to take uh, a few more minutes to explore the significance of Nehemiah's and I think our utter dependence upon God as we ask what does God have for us for the future. Because the reality is that we live uh, in a culture that is often described using the word secular. 
And I don't know how the um, word secular or what you th- strikes you or what you think of when you think of secularism. I think for some of us, when we think of secularism, what, what we mean by the word secular is that things are not going well and nobody cares about morals anymore. Or there's another view of secularism that says that secularism means that there are all kinds of people and all kinds of belief systems in our culture and no single belief has pride of place and so we just have to understand that as Christians as we interact in our world. We just have to understand that as a reality, that secularism is a fact of our culture. And for some of us, secularism means that we can't assume that our neighbors or our coworkers or the people at our uh, kids' schools um, have any understanding of or appreciation for Christianity or the Bible. They have no point of reference, and so when we interact in these places, we have to leave our faith sort of in the background and act in a way that feels neutral. And whatever we might think of those, I think, three different ways of defining the term secular, Um, all of them, I think, maybe have something we should listen to. There's another meaning of the term secular that I think is incredibly important for us to wrap our minds around. Mark Sayers, who is an Australian author and pastor, he describes the word secular with the phrase uh, progress without presence. I knew I was going to get that backwards. Progress without presence. Progress, this sense that we are moving towards a better future together. Uh, as a human race, that, that things are better now than they were in the past. Uh, I mean, and who, who on the surface can deny that? Who would prefer to live, you know, without running water or indoor plumbing? Um, but secularism is this idea that, that, that we can have progress without the presence of God. That we don't need God to accomplish this. Um, ever since the Tower of Babel, when, human, when the human race said, let's go and make a name for ourselves and let's go and do something great so that we won't be insignificant and let's, we, let's, let's walk away from God. We don't need God to accomplish this. Ever since that point, this sort of secular impulse has been within human beings, has existed within the human race. But what Mark Sayers is saying, that at some point we kind of made a crossed a tipping point culturally. And this idea that we can have progress without presence, without the presence of God, is now sort of baked into the cultural assumptions of our time. A cultural normalizing of that desire for progress without God's presence. And what the crisis that we have all been living through for the last 18 months has done, I think, is that it has unmasked the futility of secularism. The idea that infinite progress is possible and we can uh, best any challenge that faces us given enough time and enough resource has been shown to be an exercise in frustration. Yesterday in the New York Times, Esau McCauley wrote these words. He said, it seems that COVID-19 has dealt a collective trauma to the American consciousness And the full fruit of that trauma remains uncertain. But one thing is clear, our previous normal was not as good as we thought it was. I mean, how's that for an analysis? Our previous normal was not as good as we thought it was. We have knowledge, but it hasn't given us meaning or purpose. 
We have wealth, but it hasn't made us happy or content. We are as connected as we have ever been, and yet we are isolated and lonely. Technology has allowed us, even in the midst of a global pandemic, to remain productive and connected in ways that would have been unprecedented even a couple decades ago, right? And technology has produced a vaccine in record time, and yet despite all of that, we don't know if it's enough, do we? We don't know what the future holds. We haven't solved the problem, and honestly, we don't know if and when we will. And the question that we need to ask now is not what more can we do to fix it. The question I think we need to ask is, are we searching in the wrong place? Our secular culture has produced incredible material uh, prosperity. It would be foolhardy to deny that, wouldn't it? But we are as prosperous as a people uh, as, as has ever walked the face of the earth. And at the very same time, we are as lonely and anxious by any objective measure as we have ever been. Perhaps it's time that we consider the possibility that secularism is not capable of providing the solutions that it promises. As St. Augustine said 1,500 years ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Progress, yes, that's the story of scripture, but it's also a story of what God does to restore the human race to his presence. The story of scripture is about moving to a place that is better than we are now, but it's a place that is better than where we are now because it is filled with the presence of God. Progress without presence is impossible. And so if you're wondering now, okay, great, why are you making such a big deal about this? It's because secularism isn't just out there in our world. It's not just a force that we have to, I don't know, grapple with as we think about how do we survive as Christians or grow our church. The reality is that secularism is, is, is an assumption that is within the church now too. It has invaded the church as well. We make plans without praying. We speak on God's behalf without reading his word. We exchange discipleship for engagement. We exchange evangelism for marketing. And let me be clear, I'm not saying that others have done that. I have done all of those things. We have become a church that is secular in our assumptions. And you know, there's, there's been a lot of phrases that have kind of been tossed around in the last couple of years. And I just sort of wonder if maybe a phrase that we might want to embrace is make Christianity Christian again. <laughs> Christians are people who are not saved because of the things that we do. And yet the fact that God has reconciled us to himself in Christ means that we are people who do sorts, uh, certain sorts of things. Like read the word of God and pray and love others. I believe that we are living through a crisis and it's an invitation from the Holy Spirit to stop and to remember who we truly are. To remember that the only thing that really makes us unique as Christians, I mean, what makes Christians unique? It's not that they're better. It's not that they're better than anybody else. It's that we have the presence of God. And that is the whole story of scripture. When we rebelled against God, 
and could no longer stand to live in his presence, God came to us. He took on flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ comes and takes on our flesh, and God comes and dwells in our midst. And then Jesus lives the perfect life that we should have lived, and he died the death we deserved, and he rose from the grave and then ascended into heaven where he still leads us. And he sends his Holy Spirit to live within us, the very presence of God in us, in you, and in me. The presence of God is central to who we are as Christians. And crisis is an opportunity to rethink how we've gotten ourselves into this mess and turn towards the God who loves his people and promises to leave us. Let me just be clear. Like my whole job, there are two reasons why I moved here. (laughs) One is because of that view. I mean, that's incredible. But more than that, my whole job here is not to disciple you, but to help us as a church become a church that disciples each other, to become a church where we disciple our children, where we see, where our children see us being discipled by others, to help us become a church where the flourishing presence of Jesus in our world uh, where, where we become the flourishing presence of Jesus in our world because we have spent vast amounts of time in the presence of Jesus. To be a church where we love the word of God, not because it's the place where we get the right answers so we can beat up on other people, but because it's the voice of God speaking to his people. To be a church where we joyfully gather for worship, where we take the Sabbath seriously to rest because God is good to us, where we joyfully welcome people into our homes and practicing hospitality together. My job is to help us continue increasingly to do that well as a church. Because if God is going to use us as his presence in the world, we must first be transformed by his presence ourselves. Nehemiah shows us that there's a time for action. Okay, chapter three, we're gonna move to action, okay? But he shows us again that there's really no dichotomy between acting, between doing, between building, and between, uh, between that and praying. This is not a call to like retreat to monasticism. Nehemiah is one of the great leaders of world history. Um, but what he's showing us is that prayer and action are not opposed to one another. It's not that we pray and God works, it's that we pray and God works and we are working with him. When we see, what we see in this book is that there's no dichotomy at all between prayer and action. So we're gonna work and we can't do so without prayer. We are utterly dependent upon God if we are going to do and to become something different than we have been in the past. Okay, so that's the first point, and if you're getting really nervous, I just want to let you know that that was most of the sermon. (laughs) But the second thing that I think stands out in this passage is this, that Nehemiah, as he is leading God's people to regather and rebuild, uh, Nehemiah shows us that doing so requires embracing godly risk. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, and that means, like I said, that his job is to sit next to the king, to never leave the king's side, and make sure that nobody poisons the king. And that job requires an immense level of trust between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. Why would Artaxerxes choose just anybody? He has to choose choose somebody that he can trust. 
And so if Nehemiah loses the king's trust, he is worthless to the king and probably dead. And so Nehemiah hasn't said anything about this vision God's put in his heart for four months. He's been praying and he's been waiting and he's been looking for the right opportune moments. And one day when he comes into work, he's sitting next to the king and the king says, why are you so sad? And Nehemiah knows that finally now is the time. And so he prays and he boldly makes his request to the king. And he says, when the king asked me this question, I was very afraid. Now, why would, Jer- why would Nehemiah be very afraid? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why Nehemiah would be afraid. The first reason is that, like I said, his job is to be as, right next to the king, and he's asking for permission to go about 1,000 miles away. He is useless to the king if he leaves the king's side. And he knows that. And so... Um, he, 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 he's afraid because he's wondering what motives the king will read into his request. But more than that, uh, what we already know is that Artaxerxes has already stopped the rebuilding of Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter 4, um, uh, officials in Jerusalem who are opposed to the work of rebuilding Jerusalem send a letter to Artaxerxes and they say, these Jews that are rebuilding, the only reason they're rebuilding the city is because they're going to rebel against you. And it's, you know, they, have, they have this plot of sedition and, and Artaxerxes stops the work. And uh, if you've ever heard the phrase, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, right? Uh, Artaxerxes is a Persian king. And the, that phrase, the law of the Medes and the Persians, means that once the king has said it, it can never be changed. And so Nehemiah is now asking the very king to reverse his own policy and do what he has said will never be done, which is to grant Nehemiah the authority to go back and read, uh, rebuild Jerusalem. He's asking Artaxerxes to reverse his own decision. And so there's all kinds of reasons to be afraid. And so um, there's all kinds of reasons for, for Nehemiah to play it safe. But when, the God, when God opens the door, Nehemiah like runs through it and brings as much with him as he possibly can. Because did you notice uh, the king says, what do, you, what do you want to do? And he says, let me go and rebuild my city. And here's why I love what Nehemiah says. Because when the king says, go and do this, Nehemiah says, can I ask for a few more favors? If you're going to let me go, can you also let me come and cut down trees in your forest so that I can have timber to rebuild the wall and the fortress of the palace? I love how he also says, and can I bring some timber so I can build myself a house while I'm at it? You know, it's like ancient um, pork, right? Slipped into the legislation there. And he says, and while you're at it, could you write a letter to the governors so that they won't bother me? And then we see that um, when he actually gets there, he's brought some of the king's uh, military officials with him. Send me with a military escort. Nehemiah is saying, this is my chance. And he boldly asks, he asks boldly for whatever he needs. Um, He doesn't simply play it safe. And what we see is this, that having this vision that God has given him and has called him to and having determined to take responsibility for leadership and rebuilding the city and having spent time in prayer, when the moment comes, Nehemiah just goes for it. He casts caution to the wind and he goes big. There is a time uh, for boldness as we follow God. 
And I think he, what he knows is this, that, that there is no risk-free, there's no risk-free way of following the sort of life that God is calling his people to. There's no way to follow God as he builds his kingdom using us and simply play it safe. And I think that the question that we have to wrestle with is this, do we allow legitimate concerns for safety to prevent us from doing what God is calling us to, what he's calling us to do? Yes, we've got to pray, but we've got to act. And that means that we have to be vulnerable. Vulnerability doesn't mean being emotional. It means opening ourselves up to real risk. And there's no way to follow God as he is rebuilding his people in a broken world and avoid risk. So what does that look like? Um, Kids, most of you started school this week. And that means that you've met new friends and you're trying to figure out what this year is going to look like. And this may happen tomorrow. You may go to school tomorrow. And some of your new friends are going to ask you, what did you do this weekend? I remember in high school getting that question from my friends and thinking about, what am I going to say? And I would sit there at lunch in high school with my sort of friends, and I would say, well, I hung out with some friends, because this is what we're doing right now at church, is hanging out with friends, right? I mean, it wasn't precisely a lie, but it wasn't precisely the truth either, was it? Why, why am I, you know, tempted to say, uh, to hide the truth and, and instead of saying, no, I was at church over the weekend? Well, because I want my friends to like me. <laughs> I want to have friends. I don't know. That might open up more questions, and I don't know how I will answer those questions. What would it look like to take a risk and to answer the question honestly? For parents, God calls us to shepherd our kids not simply to live near them as they grow bigger, but to understand who they are and shepherd them as they grow to help them become more and more the sorts of people that God has created them to be. And that often means making difficult decisions, doesn't it? That often means saying no, and I hate saying no to my kids, mostly because of how much they complain after I say no. I don't mind saying no. I just don't want to deal with the complaining after the fact. (laughs) You know, can I have Instagram? No, but all my friends do. I don't want to have this argument anymore. (laughs) It means shepherding our children through difficult decisions about technology and how we're going to spend our time. It means having conversations with our kids that are hard. And parents, I'm just saying it's hard. Like, I get it. But there's no way to shepherd our children well and play it safe. For all of us, we all know this. Um, sometimes God's, you know, sometimes people think the reason I don't go to church is because God is just after my money. Uh, let me just tell you, he's after a whole lot more than that. <laughs> he's after not just all of your money, but all of your time and all of your resources and all of your relationships as well. There's no way... There's no way to follow Jesus without saying, I'm all in. I'm not saying you have to do that from the outset. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. There is no way, ultimately, to follow God in what he's calling us to and avoid risk. 
So the question then is, what could enable us to live that way? And the reality is that we will never be all in the way that God is calling us to be without continually coming back to the, the reality that he was all in for us first. God doesn't stand far off from a distance and say, here's what you're going to do, now get after it. I mean, think of the story that Jesus tells in Luke 15, where he portrays God as a father who gives away his wealth in order to welcome his wayward and stubborn son's children back into his home. He gives himself away to welcome us back. Jesus himself is the very embodiment of what God is calling us uh, to do. And, and, and Jesus himself is the very embodiment of what God does in order to bring us home. Think about Jesus, eternally God, of the same substance as the Father and Holy Spirit, and yet he gives up the riches of heaven, and he makes himself vulnerable, and he's born into poverty, and the guiltless one bears the sin of the world in his body, and as he dies, Jesus calls out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Think about what is happening in that moment. The all-knowing second person of the Trinity is saying, God, I have no idea what happens after this moment. That's embracing risk. And he does that for you, for me, so that we could know him, so that he might make us his people. The God who calls us to embrace the risk of following him does so having already given himself up completely for us. So let me finish with this. Very briefly, Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem just to finish the story. About a thousand miles, probably two to four months journey, he gets there and he's there for no time. He's there for three days when he goes out. He knows that the slum lords that are ruling over Jerusalem don't want him to rebuild the city because it'll upset their power. And so he goes out at night and he does this secret inspection of the walls to see what he's dealing with. And then he calls the people together and he lays out the vision that God has given him. And he says, God is calling us to rebuild. And the people respond and they say, let us rise up and build. Nehemiah, God is with you. And Nehemiah, we are with you. Nehemiah, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what this is going to exactly cost us. We don't know specifically what it, will, what it will require, but yes, we are in, we are with you. And so this passage, I think, poses this question to us, Table Church, this morning. Are you with us? Are you with us? If we see the vision that God is holding out before us, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we willing to, like God's people in 445 BC, rise up and rebuild, not knowing exactly what the future holds? Will you rise up and build with us? You might be saying, well, what does that look like? And the first thing I have to say is, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I just don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I can tell you that at, one, at some point, somehow or another, we are going to find some walls. Um, we're not going to meet out here forever. And um, when we figure out where we're going to be meeting, there are going to be new opportunities for service. That might require painting and cleaning. That might require, I don't know, showing up early to help set up and tear down. 
that, that might just look like, uh, like Brad mentioned earlier, we are trying to serve our youth in a more intentional way, and we need some people to volunteer to be a part of that, to be present in the midst of that. At some point, we're going to go inside, and that is going to sort of bring a new season for us as a church. This is the work that God has called us to. Uh, and, and part of the reality here, it, it, maybe just to push the point a little bit, is this, that Nehemiah didn't rebuild the wall all by himself. He led the people in rebuilding the wall. And whatever God's calling us to, he's not calling Brad to do it on his own with, you know, the somewhat faithful sidekick Bryce and Danny and Katie helping out. That's not what God's calling us to. He's calling us to do this together. So are you in? The second thing that I think this means is this. It means that we have to prioritize our discipleship. The, the reality is that planning will not change a culture. Changed people change a culture. And if we are going to do the things that God is calling us to do in beautiful Boulder County, then we are going to have to become the sorts of people who have been transformed by his spirit. It means we've got to give our attention to God's word, to prayer, to scripture, to hospitality. If you're in a cohort, I mean, cohorts are, 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 this is how we do this as a church, in cohorts. So if you're in a cohort and you don't know what that means, talk to your cohort leader. If you're a cohort leader and you don't know what that means, talk to me. <laughs> um, that, that is literally my job and my, my hope over the coming months is to equip cohort leaders increasingly, um, not with great planning, but with discipleship, so that we might become more and more the people that God is calling us to do, because it is transformed people, not great planning, that transforms a culture. If you have questions, if you have ideas, I'm here to serve you. Please let me know. So let me ask you again, are you with us? We don't know what the future holds, but we know this, that God is with us. He has moved heaven and earth quite literally to be in our presence, to make us his own. He has come to you in Jesus, and he is at work in you by his spirit, transforming you into the image of Christ so that you might increasingly bring the presence of God with you as you go out into the world. Amen.